to holding fast in Christ. Let us pray. God, our Father, be pleased to show us Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, as we continue this, this series of, on Hebrews, Hold Fast in Christ. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did God say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right, right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Having read scripture, I'll begin with a question. Do we have a high Christology? Christology is the study of Christ. If our understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that is Christology, was able to be captured somehow in a portrait, in a painting, in a picture. And if we were able to go back and find one of the apostles, or maybe all of them, and show them the picture that represents our Christology, our view, our understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, what would they say? Would they say, who is that? The apostles who knew Jesus, who ministered with Jesus, who were called by Jesus, who were well acquainted with Jesus, would they recognize the Jesus that we profess? Do we have a high Christology? Why is this question important? It was important to the original hearers of this letter that we're studying, Hebrews. It was written to Jewish Christians who faced trials and persecution for their faith. And they were tempted because of the severity of this persecution to forsake Christ and revert back to Judaism, which was a religion sanctioned by Rome in the day. It was a relatively safe place, and being a Christian was not safe 
at all. Would they forsake Christ? And when they go back to Judaism, and the writer of Hebrews puts before us, not only in chapter 1, but throughout the entire letter of the Hebrews, a high Christology, because a high Christology is essential. A Christology that is the right one, that is biblical, that is rooted in the Scriptures, is essential that we, that they, that we might hold fast in Christ. And so the author then exhorts his original recipients and us today to hold fast in Christ because Christ is the final word. He is superior to the Old Testament scriptures because he fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures as we considered last week. And today, Christ is superior to the angels. The author declares a high Christology. And like the original audience of this letter, a high Christology is what we need to hear in order that we too might hold fast in Christ in our day. And the implication that, that I want to draw from this text today is an implication that is from verse 14 and an implication that is from Psalm 2 that Bruce read earlier and primarily verse 12 of Psalm 2, the very end of the psalm. And here's the implication. If we have any hope of holding fast in Christ, we must have a high Christology of Christ so that we would have assurance that Jesus is superior to the angels and everything as our refuge, as our shelter that we sang just before confession. That's the place I want to bring us today as we work through this declaration of a high view of Christ in Hebrews chapter 1. The author of Hebrews argues for a high Christology by giving us six biblical reasons that Christ's name is more excellent. Remember verse 4, as we concluded our discussion last week, that Christ's name is more excellent than the angels. And the author here gives us six biblical reasons why Christ is superior to them and to everything else. But before we look at these six reasons, I want to draw out a lesson for us. And here it is. The foundation for the author's argument is Scripture. He argues from the Old Testament a number of passages that we'll look at, mainly from the Psalter. Now, we believe the Bible teaches, and we certainly know that our confession teaches, according to what the Bible teaches, that the Word of God is the only infallible rule of faith and practice, right? Have you heard that before? Please tell me you have. Well, so did the faithful Jew. 
they believed that the Old Testament scriptures was the unquestioned infallible rule of faith and practice. And the author, speaking to Jewish Christians who were under persecution, goes to the Old Testament scriptures, the unquestioned authority for faith and practice, and he argues for a high Christology. He argues for Christ's supremacy over angels and everything else. The only authority in matters of faith and practice, the only authority in matters of life, theology, Christology, anthropology, biology, science, medicine, philosophy, morality, and every other discipline that you can think of under the sun in every segment of life, culture, government, and the world existence is what? The Bible. The Word of God is not a science book, but it is the authority over the science book. Our arguments, our beliefs, our conclusions about life, our worldview, our faith, our practice of that faith is to be founded in and on the scriptures themselves, the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments. To zero in on the point is our profession of Christ, our Christology, our understanding of his person and of his work must be founded, rooted in and on the scriptures and nothing else. If we come to affirm things about Jesus, his person and work, who he is and what he has done based on anything but the authority of scripture, then the Jesus that we profess is a counterfeit. And if we showed the pictures of that Jesus that we profess that is rooted in anything but the scriptures to the apostles, they would say, who is that? With clarity, the author argues based on the scriptures. With that in mind, let's consider the six reasons the author argues for the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus over the angels and everything else. Number one, verse five, Jesus is superior because Jesus is the son. Look at the method of his argument. It is masterful. He argues from the negative to emphasize the positive about Jesus. Verse 5, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? Answer, none. <laughs> negative. But that argument from the negative emphasizes the positive about Jesus, that Jesus is the son, the only begotten son of the Father. And this is a quote from Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, Psalm 2 that Bruce read earlier, a, a messianic psalm. Now listen, the angels collectively in several scriptures are called sons, plural, of God. Job 1.6, 
and Job 2, for example. But no angel, not even Gabriel and Michael, are called the Son of God. Only Jesus. He bears that excellent name, Son of God. He is the only begotten of the Father. And that word begotten there should never be understood with regards to Jesus that he has a beginning like, like we have when we are born. No, it means something different with Jesus. It points to his eternality. It points to the fact that, that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is of the same substance of the Father. He is God. It, the term refers to his deity and his unique sonship. He is the natural son. He is the eternal son. Angels were created. We were created. We're called sons of God. But why are we called sons of God? Because we were adopted. Do you see the uniqueness of Jesus' sonship? He's eternal and he was not created. He is of the same substance of the Father. He's the natural Son. But there's a second Old Testament passage in verse 5. It is considered to be a passage related to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And what this chapter in 2 Samuel is getting at is this, that the covenant promises concerning David's throne being being established forever, will not be fulfilled by his son Solomon, who, by the way, failed, but by David's greater son, God's son, Jesus. He is uniquely the son of God. He is the one with that excellent name. He is the one that will fulfill that promise in 2 Samuel 7, that there will sit one on David's throne forever. Jesus is the Son, and the angels are not. He is unique and supreme. Secondly, Jesus is superior because Jesus is the Son who is to be worshipped. Look at verse 6, the reference to Jesus being the firstborn. We find this in Colossians chapter 1 that was read earlier. That title points to Jesus' preeminence and being eternal as the Son of God, the heir of all things. And because Jesus is preeminent, he is the object of worship, even of the angels. And there are two Old Testament passages that may very well be in the author's mind here. Psalm 97, 7, if we were to look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it would, it would refer to God's angels worshiping him. And in Deuteronomy 32, 43, let the sons of God worship him. And so the point is that the reason the author uses these Old Testament scriptures is to show that the angel's job, their privilege is to worship God and thus worship God the Son. They are to be about his worship. And just as a point of implication here, if the angels are to be about 
Jesus' worship. How much more should we be about Jesus' worship? If they are declaring his praises around the throne today, and they are, how much more should we come to worship, not to be entertained, but to declare the praises of our King and Savior? Why did you come to worship today? I appreciate the fact that you came to hear me. But that's not why you come to worship. This is, this is practice what we will be doing with the angels in heaven one day. As we will be the church triumphant. We need to get our minds set on what worship is and the privilege we have to worship today in preparation for worship one day with the angels in heaven around the throne with all the saints. Jesus is superior to the angels because he is the sole object of worship, period. Three, Jesus is superior because Jesus is the creator and sustainer. Look at verse 7. This appears to be a reference to Psalm 104 and verse 4. Psalm 104 and verse 4, he makes his messengers winds his ministers of flaming fire. I'm sure you all understand that, so we'll not go further in the explanation. <laughs> what is being said here? <laughs> First note, he makes. It's, it's a reference to the Son, Creator. He made the angels, in case you're wondering. He created them. The reference to the angels being winds and a flame of fire may point to the angels' splendor and the place of honor that they have. And the idea is, if they have a place of splendor and honor reflected in this wind and messengers of flame, then how much honor and privilege does the one have who made them? You see, it points to Jesus' supremacy, his superiority over the angel. But there's another way to understand this, and that is, to, it's, this other view suggests that the angels described as wind and a flame of fire point to their finitude as a creature as compared to Jesus, who is the eternal creator. Well, irrespective of how you understand messengers of winds and ministers of, of flame, Jesus is, is superior to the angels because he is the transcendent and eternal creator. That's what this argument here in verse 7 is getting at. The, another way to look at it this way, the gap between the angels and all of their splendor and glory is infinite compared to the glory of Jesus. 
and the glory of Jesus compared to us, we, we can't even come close to understanding the, I don't know how else you can make infinity more than infinity. Does anyone know? But So if you can make infinity more than infinity, and I would say this is a place where you need to make infinity more than infinity when we talk about the glory of Jesus compared to us. It's infinity plus, it's infinity on steroids, whatever that is. Do you get the point that is being made here? Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to everything because he is the creator and sustainer of, of all. And then fourth, Jesus is superior because he's anointed. Look at verses 8 through 9. And the Old Testament reference here is Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7. Let me read it for you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, Jesus is the Davidic king. That is extolled in Psalm 45. He is the anointed one. He is Messiah. His kingdom is eternal. But we see another truth in this reference to Psalm 45 that forms an argument for Jesus' superiority to the angels. Psalm 45 says, Your throne, O God. It's in reference to the Son. The Messianic Son is called God in this psalm. Jesus is superior to the angels because He is God. He is the anointed king over an eternal kingdom. So, I really like looking at you all. And it's a good thing I like looking at you all. Because I'm going to be looking at you all for eternity. And you'll be looking at me. Why do we sometimes forget that our relationships in the family of God are eternal? It's because the one who is superior to angels, the one who is superior to everything, Jesus, is the king and ruler of, a, of an eternal kingdom. Think about that. The church is the only institution, the only institution that will last in eternity. Five, Jesus is superior because Jesus is eternal and immutable, verses 10 through 12. And the, the Old Testament passage here is Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Let me read that for you. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. 
So like in verse 7 that we looked at just a moment ago, the, the, the author argues here in verses 10 through 12 that the Son is the eternal creator. And, but the focus in uh, verses 10 through 12 seems to be Jesus' immutability. Because he says creation, like a garment, will be changed, verse 12. But then we read, but you are the same, and yours will have no end. You see, it is because Jesus is creator. He is eternal. He is immutable. That is, he doesn't change. It's for these reasons, and many more, but, but for these reasons that we can trust him, that we can take him at his word and be assured of his plan of salvation, that it will not change, that the promises that he has made, he will not change those promises. He will not go back on those promises. He has fulfilled those promises, and they are ours. As we're trucking along, living our lives, thinking, all right, I'm saved because I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus. We can have full assurance because Jesus is immutable. God is immutable that he's not going to change the plan of salvation in the middle of our life. Just like you wouldn't change the rules in a football game or for golf in the middle of the event. God is unchanging. Jesus is immutable. Garments wear out. Our hair changes, and our hair falls out, but Jesus never changes. He is immutable. And then sixthly, Jesus is superior because he is exalted. Look at verse 13. The author here quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, Psalm we read last week. Remember back in Acts chapter 1, beautiful description of the ascension of Christ after the 40 days after the resurrection, after the resurrection, the disciples are standing there and Jesus is caught up into the clouds. He ascended. Where did he ascend? At the right hand of the Father. That right hand of the Father is a position of privilege and power. It is Jesus' rightful place. He is seated. He's not standing. Angels stand. Servants stand. Jesus is seated. And he's seated, and under his feet is a footstool that represents his enemies and ours. He ascended, reigning king, completed his mission to save sinners, and his enemies and ours are under his feet. One word, victorious. We were singing in just a moment, Jesus shall reign. And how encouraging for you and me today, how uplifting it is for us to know. How comforting it is in the middle of a trial. How amazing it is suffering persecution, being tempted to forsake Christ, to hear these words, Jesus reigns. He is victorious. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is exalted. 
Jesus being exalted is yet another reason why he is superior to angels. Is our Jesus this Jesus? Would our Christology be recognizable to the apostles? The author exhorted his readers to have a high Christology, a right Christology, a Christology rooted in Scripture. If our view of Jesus deviates from Scripture, we will have no hope. No hope of a future heavenly home. No hope of assurance that our King is our refuge in the storm. I just want to draw two implications from this. This high Christology in chapter 1 is the basis for our assurance. Christ's superiority to angels means they serve Him. So, so look with me at verse 14. This, this passage ends with the writer saying, Are they, that is the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? It's a question. Jesus' work of salvation is here compared to the angels' work in light of salvation. Jesus saves, but what is the angels' role? They serve the ones Jesus saved. And it's interesting how the author ends by yet again telling us how Jesus is superior. He did the work, but the angels are his servants, commissioned by him, commanded by him under his authority for his sake to go and minister to those who will inherit eternal life. Now think of it like this. We are saved in Christ and Christ loves us so much that he has rallied the angelic host to minister to us. Are are you kidding me? Angelic beings... being charged not only with God's worship, but also their job description says, hey, listen, angels, you go and serve, and you go and minister to my people who have been redeemed by my blood. Think about that. That the angelic host are called to serve Christ for our sake. Don't ask me what that means. I don't know. But that's their job. And secondly, I want to point out As Bruce read from Psalm uh, chapter 2, and you know, Psalm chapter 2, that verse 7, really, re- really begins this argument there in verse 5. And I want to 
end with Psalm chapter 2 as we conclude the argument. Psalm 2 ends in verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So kiss the son. What does that mean? It means Jesus is the sole object of adoration and worship. It means adore the Son, worship the Son. And how do we worship the Son? If you just look at verse 11 in Psalm 2, just the verse that comes before Psalm 12, we read this, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That describes what kissing the Son looks like. A holy fear, a reverential fear, coming into his presence with trembling for the purpose of adoration and worship. My, we, we, we need a strong dose of that in our day of casual Christianity and casual worship. Brothers and sisters, may, may we be different as we come with fear and trembling before the Son, to kiss Him and worship, to adore Him. But the very one that we are called to fear and to come before in trembling, look, look at the very last, the very last line of Psalm chapter 2 is, blessed is everyone who takes refuge in Him. A high Christology that is rooted in the scriptures will work such that we see the holiness and awesomeness of Christ and we reverentially come with fear and trembling before him to kiss him, to adore him. And a high Christology informs us that he is our king the one with all privilege and honor and power who says, I am your shelter in the storm. Take refuge in me. A high Christology of Christ is essential to holding fast in Christ as our King, as our Savior, and as our refuge. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true. It is powerful. It is clear. It is Christ-exalting. And may we live our lives before the exalted Christ, a life that is represented by kissing him, adoration and worship, fear and trembling as we come into his presence, but a life that is lived continually fleeing to him as our refuge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.